Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 35 is Daniel Ash, and you are right now listening to a bit of his biggest hit, So Alive, from his band Love and Rockets from 1989. Now, before Love and Rockets in the early 80s, he played guitar for the Gothic post-punk band Bauhaus that briefly fronted a recording unit called Tones on Tail was in Love and Rockets through the rest of the 80s and into the 90s and has put out five solo albums we'll be focusing on the one soon to be released called Freedom I Love discussing the title track and also a song called Indie Boys and we'll look back to his previous release 2016's Stripped which is actually a new version of a Tones on Tail song Christian Says originally from 1984 and we'll conclude by listening to another song from the new album, Flame On. For more information about Daniel, please see danielashmusic.com. Hello, Daniel. Hi there. Thank you so much for sending the new album. That was great to hear some fresh stuff and not just interesting retreads of past work. Right. The other one, you know, was uh, obviously 99% basically covering myself doing modern interpretations of those songs from way back. When I had the meeting with the pledge guys, they said, we want you to do uh, an acoustic, <laughs> this makes me laugh when I think about it, an acoustic version of all those songs from all the bands. So I really wasn't into that. I don't like that acoustic guitar and vocal thing very often, especially not for a whole album. It's really the opposite to what I like most of the time. So I tried it for about seven minutes and that didn't work. So I went the other way completely and put the electronic slant on it. Yeah, I saw that you'd been really ramped that up. It's seen reference to your work on the Keen Eddie soundtrack with over a hundred songs. It looked like you not being afraid of sitting at a computer for a long time. Yeah, well, I don't press the buttons, though. I sort of describe what I want. I'm, ah. I'm really bad at pressing the buttons. But I, I'm good at choosing good drum loops and putting four or five together sometimes and then getting a hopefully a killer bass line to go with them. And then once that's done... The rest is sort of cream on the top if you get the bass and drums right, you know, as far as that sort of music is concerned, more than anything. Well, that explains a lot about some of the approach on the new album. So the first song I wanted us to talk about was the title track. So Freedom I Love from the 2017, this is coming out in February, right? Yes, on uh, Main Man Records. Actually got a record deal, can you believe it? <laughs> Absolutely huge advance, just like everybody else. It's really good times. <laughs> Well, it's a very, very slick album, though it looks like, just looking at the credits, that it was kind of, uh, is this right, that it was kind of patched together from various sessions, various collaborations, several different producers involved? I sort of co-produced all of it, actually, thinking about it, all the tracks. Working with an engineer, you know, I like to work with a really good engineer, and then the two of us work together in my little office and do it that way. But it's a mix of um, stuff from 70s 
seven years ago to present day that never made it on an album because there wasn't an album to be made. I was mainly doing stuff for a film and TV, but then I thought this would be a good showcase for film and TV to actually have it on a CD because that makes a difference psychologically if you actually hand somebody a CD even now, although not a lot of people play CDs. I'm aware of that, but it's more than just sort of sending them tracks out of the blue with no artwork, et cetera, et cetera. So, but it was have a little bit more power if it's actually officially on a record label, you know, and on the CD if you want it. Obviously, you're going to be able to download it as well. But yeah, the tracks will sort of seem to mix in well because I've sort of been interested in electronic music for a long time now, since the late 80s, actually. Particularly in the 90s, I thought there was some really good stuff coming out of the UK around that time. Orb and Orbital as well. That was a sort of inspiration for us in the latter days of Love and Rockets, actually. I think it was sort of apparent with things like Lift and Portrait to Heaven, which unfortunately was commercial suicide for us. I think that was either going to be our dark side of the moon or it was going to flop. And unfortunately, it flopped commercially. But we're very proud of that record because, you know, we were very influenced of what was going on in the electronic scene around that time. Sure. And then I see your third solo album, the self-titled one, you really went full on. That sort of provided maybe the blueprint of what's come since. Yeah, it's funny because people would say, well, you've done that before and you've had no success with it. Why would you do that again? (laughs) But I mean, you can only do what you love doing. I mean, the old fashioned drums, you know, it just got pretty tedious after doing that for 20 odd years. It's, you know, time to move on. You know, I've always just done what I've wanted to do. And if it's as any commercial success, that's a bonus. But I like what I like. So again, going back to this first track, that was an experiment that started to develop that particular track, Freedom I Love. And um, I just went on from there, basically. I mean, that was the sort of kickoff point. I lost that track and forgot about it for a few years. And then uh, I think Chris actually pointed it out to me, Chris, the minister who helps me with all this mm-hmm. stuff. And um, as far as, you know, doing the website and everything. And I listened back to it and, I, and you know, it was about nine o'clock in the morning and, and it still sounded good at nine in the morning when you just got up. And so I thought, I've got something here. So I thought I'd actually just clean it up, do a few edits, add a couple of things and it was the sort of inspiration for all the rest of the tracks together because they all sort of gel well together I think I think it flows as an album so nine months down the road here it is all sort of one track after the other
Freedom I love Right, so I see your button pusher on that was Christopher Foley. Who is that guy? How'd you track him down? Uh, Chris Foley. He's a guy that had his own studio in Ojai, and he'd been doing lots of different commercial things. I don't know exactly what he was up to, but I had an opportunity of working with him. God, this is going back about seven years, I think. Okay. And the track had actually started its life. I was working with a guy called King Brain in Germany, who is a DJ and a remixer and a mixer. So I started off the track with him. That's where the lyric came from, because he asked me to write a lyric with a lot of different girls' names, which I sort of jotted down a bunch of different names and then basically built a song around it. And The Freedom I Love, I think the title probably came from my love of riding bikes all the time, motorcycles. So the combination of those two things, which inspired me to, to do that track. As I said, originally it was with King Brain in Germany. I was doing another track with him. This one he sort of passed on. So I said, okay, can I take the lyric and take it wherever I want to take it? Take my vocals and everything. And he said, yeah, no problem. So that developed into working with Chris Foley in his studio. And we spent two, three days on it. We knocked the song around and got some fresh loops. I often get a bug about something. I thought, there's something in this, there's something in this. And then I decided to follow through. And, And as I said, five, six years later, whatever it was, I just heard the track out of the blue. After forgetting all about it, it was one of those, I really liked what I heard. So I just made a few edits, polished it up, got it mastered properly, and there it is. Chris Foley is now in things he's working at in Santa Barbara. He does a lot of people's websites and web pages and stuff like that. Yeah, so I noticed like the King Brain tune, the one or two that you collaborated with him on, it. it's just listed as music by him and lyrics by you. Was that he would just kind of come up with the electronics on his own and you would come and layer stuff over that? Were you even in the same room? <laughs> I guess is the question. What it is with those DJ guys, they gave me a great backing track and then they say, can you put guitar and write a song around mm-hmm. it? So I go, if I love the backing track, which I did with these two, it's the first two tracks on the album, actually. The second one is, again... He did the music and I, you know, added guitars and vocals. And that's good because those guys often are a lot better than me at getting those basic tracks down. I mean, they get that great kick drum sound. And then sometimes I do a bass line as well. That is something I've done many times where a good DJ has sent me a great backing track and then I add to it. The only problem with that stuff is you do the stuff and then you send it back and they say, yeah, that was great. Thank you so much. And that's it. You don't hear anything ever again. There's no payments involved. There's no nothing. It sort of goes 
out there onto white label records. People spin it in clubs and that's the end of it. So I sort of got fed up with that. Because nobody knows who's doing what. It's just like a track in a club. Well, and as nice as it is, is to not have to sit in front of the computer and do this stuff yourself, having somebody like that in the room with you that you can then throw very abstract ideas at and psychedelic ideas and, and layer your guitar effects over seems like it's much more satisfying than, than this remote. Oh, well, it's, it's quicker. It's a lot quicker, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, with King Brain, I was, I was never in the room with him. He was in Germany and I was over here and he'd send me stuff. But with the Freedom I Love track, I actually changed a lot of the backing anyway and put some fresh loops on there and the arrangement was different. Just reworked it completely on that particular track. So it's sort of slightly different on, on everything. You know, there are other tracks on there, but I'm pretty much playing everything, you know, and I'm just using other people, other studios, using and abusing other people. <laughs> At what stage did the female vocal that ended up being so prominent in the song come in? This Amy Arani, I see, is from uh, Austin, Texas. Yeah, well, that was somebody that he knew. Okay. And it's funny because there was a couple of guys in the studio and one of the guys, I remember there's a funny story connected to it because I didn't know this girl at all. And the guys wanted to bring her in because she was a little hearty. That was the attitude at the time. And I was like, okay, can she actually sing? And they said, yeah, yeah, she's got a great voice. But we want to see her anyway. It was it was one of these things, you know, it's a guy thing. But the way it worked out, I mean, we just let her loose onto the mic and what happened, happened. You know, she sang those lines and then we flew them in. So that's interesting that you say that the song started with the list of names because when you have the reprise, well, it's, it's listed as a remix, the crazy drum mix version. And I was very tempted actually to suggest that we use that for this because in some ways that it really pairs it down to the essentials and it makes it the sort of classic track that, you know, I think of the original version of So Alive and some of the other things that you're very well known for of just super tasteful that it gets right to the, the most interesting thing about the song is this litany, this nothing to lose, nothing to take, nothing to see, nothing to be, nothing to steal, etc. That that's sort of the implications of what freedom actually amounts to that. It's not actually it's a double edged thing. It's not <laughs> the freedom from is also a vertigo of the, there's actually nothing I'm writing some existentialism into it. (laughs) Nothing to be. Well, yeah, that's where lyrics come from. Yeah. With all this stuff, I always sort of, I'm usually sipping on a, a glass of red wine when I'm doing this and then things open up and I find out what's really on my mind after having a few drinks. That hasn't really changed. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Yeah, I get where, where you're saying with that, but th- that is the case. Exactly where, for, I mean, I might have got that title from the whole uh, William Burroughs, David Bowie, you know, the cut-up idea. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of titles. I get a lot of, you know, most of the tones on tail written using cut-up. The Bauhaus tracks that I was involved with, the lyrics, they're the same things, a lot of cut-up. Explain that a little more. So you write you write things out and then you actually cut up the piece, of, you rearrange them, is that? I like to use the National Enquirer because they have great titles. They got really hit you between the eyes titles, very powerful titles. Then I steal all the titles, cut them up out of the magazine, and then I put them all together, move them around until I get great sentences, what I think are really interesting, good. That, that's You know, Bowie did that a lot. Various tracks that he was involved with. And it kind of, you know, he got the idea from William Burroughs. But Burroughs would do that in his writings where he, he actually would see things, a couple of pages that actually shifted differently and he'd find new sentences. 
that are a lot better than what came out of his consciousness. And that's where the whole, the cut-up thing sets you free. You come up with sentences and sayings and titles that you would never think of. I mean, like, freedom I love, if you just do it the bland way, it would be I love freedom, and how boring is that? But when you say freedom I love, it's got much more of a flair to it. And that would have come from a, knowing me, that would have come from a cut-up. You know, you should try it. You just cut them up, put them on a piece of paper after they cut up and move them around and you get these lyrics, basically. It's fun. A lot of fun doing it that way. A lot easier than it all coming, all of it coming from you. And also you find out what the song is about. This may sound strange, but you find out what's really on your mind subconsciously when you start putting these titles together. It creates something that you consciously wouldn't have thought of. It's very freeing to do that. Yeah, well, as long as it relates back to something that actually means something and it's not just a colorful tableau of images, which can be okay, but... You have to hone it in. You have to see what works and what doesn't, mm-hmm. and that's up to the individual. Otherwise, it's gobbledygook and it's bullshit. You have to have the flair to actually put the sentences together. You know, I remember, like, Go from Tones on Tail. You know, there's a, the people are, most of the time think that's pretty much an instrumental, but there's actually a lot of lyrics in there. And looking back on that, it definitely came from cut-ups. I think I was using the Viz magazine in England and, and that real tacky paper, The Sun, to get these dramatic lyrics. But I, a lot of those I wouldn't have thought of if it was up to me on my own. And then, as I said, it totally sets you free to be somebody else and not yourself. You think, oh, wow, look at these two lines together. They're really effective, and you go with it. Well, and then the way you layer it in the song, where you state it once, and then the second time... There's vocal effects take over and make the sound. You're, you're talking about getting free from yourself. That's the sort of audio equivalent of that is you're having the words themselves sort of shake themselves out of place with this swooping effect of what, do you know what vocal effect that is? about the echoes and stuff yes where you're just adding delay and then kind of twisting the knobs while it's going that kind of changing the speed while it's yeah it's, it's called a roland space echo ah. as you're doing the mix as you say you start turning some knobs and getting everything to go crazy and feedback and come up and go down roland space echo is really good for that there's a couple of other units but i use an old 70s one which has got that really nice warm saturated analog sounds that I find to be the best one. Plus, it's very reliable as well. Some of the other stuff breaks down a lot. Those old space echoes are really good. They, they used that a lot in the 70s on the, on the dub reggae stuff. And they would trip guitars, they would trip snares, kick drums, anything and everything. It's a great effect. So say a little more about these two versions. I mean, the first, the one that we just played is a pretty sprawling one. You're really taking advantage of the fact that you have the female vocals in there, you know, letting her stretch out at the beginning, letting the groove really set in. Whereas this remix, you know, usually the remix is the one that is extended and something called crazy drum mix version sounds like, oh, we're going to throw in some extra dance floor or, you know, borderline excessive, kind of like you have the bigger, better deal remix of Where's My Leather Cat Suit at the end. But the Crazy Drum Mix version is actually more concise. It cuts out the solo female vocal at the beginning. It gets right to your, the vocal line. It cuts out the list of names, which again, I'm surprised that that was the first thing, but it does explain sort of, I got to say that the more concise version that gets rid of that altogether, I like better because it's just more thematically unified that it's this 
freedom and then it's you know what does the freedom mean and then it still has the dissolves into the well the crazy drum break and this fairly immediate ascending chord thing that you know so the whole thing ends up being three minutes instead of five minutes you're reading a lot into this the thing with the crazy drum it's why i called it that and the way it turned out is we just got this killer crazy drum sound halfway through the track or whenever it comes in so that was the inspiration to call it that The thing is, I had three or four mixes of this stuff that I couldn't really touch apart from doing some full-on edits, as in just sections of the song to make it flow better, but I didn't have all the stems for it. They were long lost. I had to work with what I had because I couldn't do a remix of what I'd done years before. It was a case of getting the best sections of what I had, joining those together, boom, and there's the finished thing. So the inspiration for that one was that killer drum sound that we got through using various echoes and overloading. I like to put drum machines through a speaker that is fucked up, so it's distorting itself. Did that a lot with tones because we couldn't afford any. We used to use a little $50 drum machine that was like twice the size of a packet of cigarettes, and we would run that through a speaker or a little combo amp that was basically on its last legs. So it would all distort and everything. We'd get that great distorted, dirty sound rather than a boring, clean drum sound. So again, that would have been the case with this one where we were just overloading stuff in order to get that distorted, great sound. Let's throw the second song up here just as a contrast. So the the one that I picked was Indie Boys. So this really is an example of the, well, it's a return to a, a rock style. It's a different producer, this Sean Inglesby who plays the drum fills and drum programming and analog synths, it specifies. that I didn't just sit in front of a computer. I played analog synths, another bassist. And yeah, this song is very concise. It's got the guitar thing coming back. Any introductory words before we play it for him? Well, that one was a completely the other end of the spectrum where I finished song, got it there on acoustic guitar, worked it out that way, and then we took it into the studio with Sean, and then we basically developed the song as we recorded it. But... I knew where the verses and the choruses were. So it was a matter of actually getting that sound in like a proper song that you put on a record rather than just a sketch of an idea. So that was all written. And then it was a case of just making it sound as good as possible. And Sean was great putting some added keyboards and stuff like that on it. All right. And the meaning of the song should be obvious. Let's play it and then we'll talk about that.
So is this reflecting on before getting a record deal again, or is this like people you were dealing with? What actually inspired this song? I've never really been a big fan of the so-called indie scene where it's the snobbery that's connected to it, whereas a lot of people in the indie land turn their noses up at big commercial hits. And I'm the opposite. I'm thinking, I wish I could have big commercial hits, but they, they were very few and far between, unfortunately. But I've always been very aware and very turned on to three and a half minute hit single. I love that. That takes, to me, a lot of talent to actually, you know, the thing that comes to mind right off the bat is um, Billy Jean by Michael Jackson. That is a perfect record to me, perfect song. The way it's crafted, the quality of the, every single instrument, the vocals, everything about it is perfection as far as the hit single goes. And I, I'm a big admirer of that. And a lot of these indie boys, they turn their nose up at that stuff. And, oh, yeah, it's too polished. No, I'm the opposite. I have no problem with stuff being polished. I mean, going back to, like, Roxy Music and Brian Ferry and George Michael, huge fan. I love that deluxe. I call it deluxe production, and I'm a big, big fan of it when it's done right. You know, I think Bowie was really good at that as well. He was somebody that had the best of both worlds because he didn't have to do bland lyrics or just pop. There was that element mixed in with the real depth. For example, you know, the piano sound in fashion, fantastic. The way he distorted the piano on that. And again, though, if you notice with Bowie, the quality of the sound is superb. The whole indie thing, when they deliberately, what I'm trying to get at is when people deliberately try to underproduce something, it really bugs me. And they say, yeah, I got 40 songs. I'm thinking, well, so what? I'd rather have one song that's a hit than 40 songs that are whatever. So that um, snobbery that comes, not with everybody, obviously, but uh, a lot of that indie stuff bugs me because it's underproduced and unfinished and not fully realized. And that bugs me because they sort of, some people get on their high horse about stuff and they deliberately want to be left of center. And it just annoys me because I'm not adverse to the glossy hit single. I just wish I had a bunch of them. <laughs> well, I, you know, I would put So Alive, your big single in that same category as one that's just a perfect production. And it has the weird elements, just like what you're pointing out in Bowie. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that was a dream come true, that track, because that got it all. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were turned off by that coming from Love and Rockets because we were obviously considered an indie band, you know, and then that came out. And suddenly we had a bunch of 16 year olds at the gigs and stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is great. But a lot of our core audience thought it was throwaway, which uh, I don't agree at all. I guess one of the things that is maybe good about being less than successful is that as long as you're successful enough to feel like you can continue making records, then you keep putting things out. Like you mentioned Pink Floyd before. I mean, I was watching a Pink Floyd documentary recently. Roger Waters was saying, like, success ruined that band just in terms of a lot of the motivation for pushing ahead was to, like, create this definitive sound. And once they hit that in the big couple of albums, then at least, you know, some of the members of the band stopped writing as assiduously. And that's not an uncommon story where... Certainly, I don't see that in the Love and Rockets output after that album. Maybe it was because it was a, a one-off song and didn't give you guys so much money that <laughs> you never had to make music again. Yeah, well, actually, you know, going back to that thing, I do know what you're talking about with the band, we think, Floyd, because it was a nightmare for them because suddenly they'd hit the jackpot. Where were they to go after Dark Side of the Moon? You can't top it. So that creatively 
I can really understand that being a, a nightmare because you're done. You've said it all, all in that album. And I think that's the case with Pink Floyd anyway. I'm not a big fan, but I'll play Dark Side of the Moon and like, wow, everything is so good on, on the whole thing. It's perfect in that genre of music. And yeah, where do you go from there? But I remember with us, for example, after So Alive, I think the next thing that we put out as a single was No Big Deal, which is not exactly, particularly the video for that was anti-commercial. We deliberately hardly did anything in, in the video. We were just, we deliberately made it minimal. We didn't have a lot of effects going on. We didn't have a lot of different camera angles and all the rest of it. And at the time it was people saying, you know, the record company, they were saying, what are you doing? This is so not commercial compared with So Alive. And I know why I think subconsciously we were doing that because we didn't want to get into that state where you're expected to come up with So Alive, another five or six So Alive. I don't think we could have come up with another five, six So Alive anyway. But uh, you know what? I'm on the edge of contradicting myself here, which I tend to do all the time anyway, because I just said before how I love the idea of the hit singles, but we couldn't have come up with it. It's like what Lou Reed said with Walk on the Wild Side. He said, that was a one-off. I remember seeing an interview with him saying he wish you could have more of those. It was just one of those magic moments in the studio and everything came together in a super commercial sense. And we got a very, very cool track out of it. But it was a one-off. And it was the same with us, obviously, with So Alive, because I think that's the only song that sounds like that. It was just a magic moment. We wrote it, recorded it, mixed it, produced it, everything in a 24-hour period. It was just one of those magic moments. So is it one of the other videos I was seeing, This Love, I think your solo tune, that seemed to be the only thing I could see in your corpus after that. That sounded like some record person said, do another song that sounds like So Alive. Yeah, well, it definitely wasn't a record person saying that because I don't ever listen to those guys. Maybe that's why, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's an English thing. We'd always react to whatever's going good. We go, okay, let's fuck this up and just go in another direction. I mean, that happened with Pop Trip to Heaven, with Love and Rockets as well, because we were sort of sick of the guitar orientated. Either David or myself would go away, write the song, bring it to the group, and then we'd do it, and it would start off with a guitar. And we got really bored with that after like three albums or four albums, so we went the other extreme. Plus, we were very influenced, as I said before, with the stuff that was going on in the early 90s with the electronic music scene, if you like. So, I mean, I had a little fantasy that that was going to be our dark side of the moon, but it completely bombed in a commercial sense. In fact, I remember people from the record company in England saying that, because we had a lot more success, obviously, in America than the UK with, with Love and Rockets. And Americans that were in London, they, they would buy the CD there back in whatever it was, 1992, and they were actually taking the CD back to the store saying, this doesn't sound like Love and Rockets, I want my money back. I mean, we heard that several well, times because it was America still wanted their guitars at that time in comparison with the UK and Europe, which were they were moving on into the electronic field. But people that liked us, they wanted to hear guitars. So, you know, it was a commercial flop, but still sounds good. And now that's mostly, again, based on the first track that we heard here, what you've done in the past few solo outings. But here, Indie Boys, we have a return to that, but you're doing it in a way that is sneering at people whose whole career is that, and you're doing the heavy distortion and the effects on the vocals that make it sound like, again, is it self-irony? What, what's going on here? <laughs> oh, well, there's that as well, because I was criticizing myself. Because I remember seeing somebody mention about Somebody said on a comment saying, well, you haven't had any hits since blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I was sort of criticizing and bitching about myself. 
because I'm definitely in that area, the whole indie thing. We used to have a joke in the bands, you know, saying that we, if we had about 10 more brain cells, we'd actually be a successful heavy rock band. I remember, I remember that was a joke that we, uh, well, I used to say anyway. There's a sort of, uh, I have this bad, whereas I think it's to do with being brought up Catholic. I'm definitely not a Catholic now, but I was brought up that way. If things are going well, you, you want to fuck it up. You know, I don't know if deep down it's because if you get to a certain stage of success, then your freedom's taken away from you. I think that's got something to do with it. That mixed in with wanting to go against the grain. Again, I remember seeing a, a Bowie interview where he was doing the Glass Spider tour, you know, around that time. And people were saying to him, what are you doing? This is not you. And he wasn't happy. He was making a ton of money and he was being a pop star, but he was not happy. Because up to that point, up to say Let's Dance, that album, he was just, as I think he said, really enjoying going against the grain all the time. In a creative sense, that's very stimulating. That's a lot of fun. But anyway, you know, we all have to try different things. So he, um, one point around that Glass Spider tour, he just like stopped the whole thing and all the world tours were canceled and everything else. And he went back to being for want of a better word, more experimental. So that was the 89 or so, something like that? Something like that, yeah. I mean, it's hard to actually talk about this stuff because I'm contradicting myself. I'm aware of that. I'm contradicting myself all the time. But the creative process, it takes you in many different areas. And personally, I'm the sort of person that, you know, I love the idea of some commercial success, but I have this thing that overpowers that, which is, Okay, whatever's cool at the moment, I'm going to do the opposite. I, I, you know, for example, I remember when somebody said at a certain point, the early mid '90s, they said, "Okay, brass sections, saxophones, brass sections, that's out. That's not cool." So I said, "Right," and then I went ahead and did a bunch of tracks using brass sections. Just I don't know. It's just what I do. I just like to go against the grain. Well, and even on this one, you've got the big, you know, heavy metal chords that are going through the courses, but then the lead guitar part is a very almost 80s or 70s, this wah, wah, this like little snarky thing that would not be on your 1994 grunge album or whatever. Yeah, again, it's just trying to uh, do something that's not expected. There's a hell of a lot of power in that. I'm hoping in the long run it pays off because when you stick to a formula, there's nowhere to go. You have your 15 minutes and then you're pretty much done. So maybe subconsciously that's what's been happening with me because, you know, I definitely haven't gone down that path. Uh, the other side of it is I don't know if I have the talent to go down that path anyway to come up with like hit singles year after year. I'm sure that it's not everybody can do that. I really admire people that can do that. You know, it's like somebody like Elton John. I think he said something about, well, I've managed to have a hit single every year now for the last 24 years. I mean, wow. Obviously with Bernie Taupin, but I'm saying that's a hell of an achievement. But the pressures and all the rest of it that come with that, I would think is quite a nightmare. I don't know. I've got my hands in the area. It's like, whatever. It is what it is. I just do what I do. Let me ask you about one, one little bit of the instrumental here again. About a minute and a half in, there's this keyboard break.
is that you at the height of your guitar weirdness or what, what is this? Or is this something that came out of the producer's head? Oh, yeah, oh, probably. <laughs> Sean's analog synths. <laughs> well, if it, yeah, oh, well, it could be. With a synthesizer line, if it was that, it's something where we probably would have heard it and thought, well, that's okay, but it's, let's fuck it up because it sounds boring because it's too clean. Yep. It's probably one of those situations where we would just, I hate this word, but make it more edgy, more powerful, more edgy, whatever. Well, this actually sounds like a perfect transition to the third song, which I wanted to move back to the previous release, Stripped, one of the remakes of a Tones on Tail song. Christian says, the thing that really makes these new versions stand out are the consistently crazy distorted synthesizers. That's kind of like what we just heard on that previous song. And I was a little surprised how consistent that was between songs. That one right there with Christian says, obviously it's fully realized on the Tones on Tail version. Yep. That really kicks. That's great. So I said to Matt from Pussifor, I just said, okay, because he sent me something else before that I didn't connect with. It had a really heavy bass line. It wasn't my sound. It wasn't something that I, I was into. So I said to Matt, I called him and said, look, with this, I gave him the vocals and I gave him the Ebo line, which is pretty much an anchor for the whole thing. And then I said, go wherever you want with this. And the words I use, I just said, fuck it up. And he said, I know exactly what you mean. Okay, I got it. And then he created all those other sounds on there. I gave him the vocal and the Ebo line. And then he proceeded to fuck it up in a good way. And then when he sent that back to me, I said, like, there you go. That's what I want. Because, you know, you don't want to do a version that just sounds exactly like the Tones on Tail version. There's absolutely no point of that. So that was Matt creating all those. I love the way that that whole thing broke down. And it's funny. You see, there's me contradicting myself because I'm saying I love Billie Jean by... Michael Jackson, and then I'm, I love the fact that this was deconstructed <laughs> completely. So I think actually what it boils down to is I've got probably a very, very musical taste because, you know, I love the Velvet Underground to this day, and it doesn't get much more uh, deconstructed than that and underproduced as such, but they just do that perfectly. It's just they have that magic with that. It's, um, it's actually not deconstruction. It's something in another realm completely, which is beautiful and perfect. So I suppose it's just different genres of music we're talking about here. Well, let's play the song for him.
So I compare this to the original, going through each of them and what songs were taken. And it almost sounds like the original was taken as a bass track and then just things were overdubbed and the original was eventually removed. Like it is exactly the same tempo. It is. Yeah, so I kept the tempo the same, but um, they're all completely re-recorded. I kept the original style of doing the vocals on most of this stuff. That was important. Otherwise, it's not the song anymore. Sure. It's all reconstructed. They're fresh vocals. Everything is completely re-recorded. They're not remixes, they're remake. That's the difference. Obviously, the change in vocals could just be you're getting older, but it just the context in which the vocal style is presented seems to make a lot of difference. That if you're talking about, right, the original version was from uh, a 1984 single, and when you hear that kind of vocal around those sorts of drum, electronic drums and things at the time, it's just got completely different cultural connotations, at least to me, than this thing now, which does sound more like Pussifier, Mitchell's other band, and not just because he's in it, but it's really well modernized. That was the whole point of Strip, is to do modern interpretations of those songs. As I said, the people that started the whole project off, they wanted me to do acoustic versions, which, God, that sounds so boring. And so self-indulgent. So I could, I tried it for seven minutes and I couldn't bear it. So when the other extreme thought, well, I love electronic music, let's do that. And also there's some reggae tracks in there, which again, I didn't know they were going to turn out that way. It's just, you're in the studio, you've got the song and you say, you're working with the engineer and you go, okay, how do we turn this upside down? 
but make it valid. That was like six months hard work, you know, in the office here, like five days a week, getting those songs together. Some of those songs were like, they took three weeks to get to, uh, you know, American Dream was like that. I was trying this and trying that, and it just sounded like bad 90s rock music. And then every time I was talking about the song, I was absent-mindedly playing reggae, playing the, after so many days, I thought, you know what, let's try this in a reggae format. And uh, it works. So yeah, it's called the working process, you know? Well, yeah, it's interesting how the connection between reggae and punk, like it's a very, the clash. And I just had uh, John Langford from the Mekons on a while ago that they started as a British punk band and got into some country stuff, but a very consistent launching point of, you know, how can I do something different from this song with this song is, is to go into reggae. And I have no idea why, why that connection is there. Back in the day, in England, the people that love punk, we were totally, I wasn't a punk, but I mean, I really loved punk when it came out because it broke all the rules again. It was just what the music industry needed. The thing is, in England, reggae was huge. We all loved reggae. I remember us, you know, going on the road with the various bands I've been in. We would play reggae all the time, mainly 70s dub. You know, then you get things like The Clash, they were doing Police and Thieves mm-hmm. in that reggae style, etc. You know, it was a big influence. Everybody loved reggae. It was completely different from punk audibly, but we all loved it. So some kind of similar ideological origin or something. (laughs) Well, I was introduced to reggae actually from Dave and Kevin. They would play this 70s dub reggae, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? It sounded incredible to me. The production, again, super sounds, not underproduced. I mean, those guys, African Anthem, is my favorite, I think, that encapsulates it all to me. That's got all, it's been sampled a lot, that particular album. It's called African, African Anthem. That's why the reggae version of American Dream happened. It's because of that deep root. Well, actually, yeah, deep, deep rooted influence. Um, I remember the first record I ever bought was called uh, Double Barrel by Dave and Ansel Collins. And they had another single, this is back in the 70s, called um, Monkey Spanner. Those two tracks are amazing. Actually, I think it was in the 60s, actually, when they came out. 60s or early 70s. Dave and Ansel Collins. Now that, you know, it's the first record I ever bought. Seven-inch single when I was a kid. So I know even Bob Dylan, right? Bob Dylan is known for remaking his songs when he plays them live because he's just so bored of these damn things he played for so long. And so a lot of them come out reggae. And that seems a symptom of I'm kind of bored with the material and I want to rework it in a, in a way that has a different feel. Whereas, you know, I remember an interview with John Lennon shortly after sometime in the 70s where he was asking, you know, would you want to remake any of the Beatles stuff? Like it really is. How do you feel about those recordings? Which, of course, most people hold kind of sacred. Like I would never change it. And yeah. Said, I would want to remake every single one of those. Like I, I was not satisfied. So did you use this opportunity in remaking your songs to like, you know, that song didn't really come out. Christian says didn't come out the way I wanted to in the first place. And no, no. So it was none of that. No, 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 no. Totally satisfied. The way Christian <laughs> says came out, I loved it. No, it was just like a really good song that, you know, I try to pick the best songs to redo because I'm not going to pick a song that wasn't very good to begin with. What's the point of that? That's me being lazy as well. So, but the thing is, a good song is a good song, you know. So, no, absolutely. No, no, it wasn't the case with any of these tracks. In fact, it was a real struggle to make them as good or better than the original because sure. they were all fully realized. I thought the way um, the Bauhaus song, that one I thought really came out really strong. In comparison, Slice of Life. Yes, Slice of Life, right? You know, I'm pleased with the original, but I think the way the remake of it, I'm hoping a lot of people are going to hear that and 
consider it as a good version because I thought that one came out really well. Christian Says seems to be one of the only songs that I could hear on Tones Hotel that sounds like it could potentially have been something that Bauhaus would release. I mean, was that... There's a songmeanings.com where fans sort of say what they think the song means. And one person was, oh, he's this is making fun of Peter Murphy or something of how awful it was to get along with him. And you know, I know this was a long time ago. Do you want to say anything about what this song was about initially? No, I've got real clear memories of what that song is about. It's nothing to do with that house. What it was was I was walking down the street in the town center one day and I bumped into this Christian couple. And back then I was really struggling with faith and uh, spirituality and always searching, searching, searching. And I bumped into this Christian company. It was right in the middle of being in Bauhaus, you know, so it was on my mind, you know, what path I was going down. And this Christian was saying, you know, you can't live your life this way and you should be like this and you should be like that. So that sounds all about what this Christian guy was telling me in the street. And I, I remember going home and talking to Dave about it. And he said, oh, you don't want to be taking notice. You know, that's one thing, but it's not for you. It's not this, it's not that. And I was very confused and definitely searching. And that connoted Ebo Snake Charmer riff. <laughs> no, no, not religion, but uh, the spiritual side of things. You know, we were potentially, we were going down a path within the band, within Bauhaus in particular, which I wasn't sure about because I got a hell of a kick out of it, but I wasn't sure if I was on the right path in a, in a spiritual sense. You know, and this goes back to also one of the teachers I had at school, this woman, I can't remember her name, one of our female teachers, and she was a devout Christian. And she was such a soft-spoken woman, so pure. And I was right in the thick of recording and working, you know, with the band, Bauhaus, and it was so opposite to what she was about. And every time I was in her presence, I felt this calmness complete calm and it was the opposite to what i was feeling in the band so it was quite dramatic can you characterize what this spiritual vibe in bauhaus was that was the thing that was so not peaceful but well it wasn't exactly fluffy fluffy mm -hmm. put it that way yeah it was uh, pretty dark very intense I mean, those gigs, they weren't a walk in the park. There was, it was all the frustrations that you had. I know with Peter and myself, you know, we, all the frustrations for us to uh, of school life, because, you know, we weren't really into sports and stuff. We were more, you know, the kids that like more into the arts and stuff like that. Like the kids that listen to Bauhaus in my generation. <laughs> That's what that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we weren't really into sports and soccer. And, you know, we were pretty much the opposite to the whole jock thing. You know, it's pretty obvious to say that, but that's what, and so all this stuff came out and it was angry. You know, we were pissed off at school. I mean, we couldn't relate to those guys at all. That whole scene, you know, and I know over here you have the whole cheerleader thing, which is, and the graduation stuff you do over here. I can't even relate to that. I, I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to uh, handle that stuff. It was very extreme. So yeah, the, the whole balance thing was an extreme reaction to that. So then, as I said, I bumped into this Christian guy who was a devout Christian. don't know if he was reborn. He was with his wife, and they were telling me, well, this is the way to go. But I had a real conflict with that because I was brought up Catholic, and I really don't like that faith at all. I, it riddles you with guilt, the whole Catholic guilt thing. I think it's really unhealthy religion. So that's basically where Christian says comes from. So looking at it now, I can think, well, at least I got a good song out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reflecting on the extent to which I hear there's a reason that the Love and Rocket stuff, you know, when I was reading just comments on YouTube about, you know, somebody was saying, well, some people have their Beatles and some people have their Pink Floyd and I have my Love and Rockets. Like there's that kind of level of reverence among fans for 
those albums as a whole that just like Dark Side of the Moon, you know, of course, a different technological generation and a different sound and all that stuff. So it definitely has a spiritual element in there with the Tones on Tail in particular. I know that that was kind of a, a fun studio distraction to do something different from what was in Bauhaus. So it seems like a sort of a less serious project overall. Yeah, it was an outlet big time. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and Glenn's a real character. So the three of us together, Glenn, Kevin and myself, we had a lot of fun in the studio. And also there was absolutely no commercial pressure. We could basically go in there and do what the hell we wanted to. And what came out, to this day, I'm really, really pleased with that band and what came out of it. It was complete freedom for me. There were no pressures in any area at all. And uh, things really flowed. Um, yeah, it's a pity that band didn't go on any longer, but it is what it is. And it seems like the spirit of fun, looking at your then more recent albums, has fully conquered that spiritual searching. I mean, is there stuff on the new? There's, you've got a nice instrumental. You've got the echoplex that kind of gets into that atmosphere. But even that seems more play as opposed to I'm tormented and I have to get this out through my art in the way that, you know, some of you could see Bauhaus as. Don't get me wrong. We had a lot of fun in Bauhaus as well. It wasn't all doom and gloom at all. It's just that what came out musically... I think a lot of it was to do with uh, living in England in 1978 with that terrible weather and the fact that the country was completely in a depression around that time. So that's what came out musically. I don't think we could have made that that music if we lived in California, Southern California, for example. The uh, climate that you live in has a lot of effects on what you come up with. But also a big, big part of this is the chemistry of the people you work with. I mean, if you think about Love and Rockets, it's only... It's Bauhaus minus one person, but it sounds completely different because the chemistry is different in the studio. Same with Turns on Tales, same with when you're working with another producer or, or other people. The different characters and personalities of who you work with completely shape and color what you come up with. Well, I was listening to the last Bauhaus during the 80s, the burning from the inside, which really does have some of that spirit of fun. I mean, there's some just weird, goofy instrumental tracks that is, uh, it sounds like you were getting tired of the pattern that you had set up with the earlier material. Yeah, the thing with that particular album, Peter wasn't in there for the first two weeks that we were in. So the original plan was to just record some backing tracks and some ideas because he actually had double pneumonia. So he was recovering from that. It was actually the seeds of the forming of Love and Rockets because we noticed that the chemistry, the atmosphere was completely different in the studio when Pete wasn't there for the first two weeks. And for us at the time, it was refreshing and different. And so that's why that album does sound substantially different from the others because uh, one of the members of the, of the band wasn't in there when we started recording for the first couple of weeks. Well, I was wondering what the story was that you got to sing on Slice of Life. So you just did that before he even showed up? Is that uh, how worked? Pretty or? much, yeah. There was a few, yeah, and, and Dave's track, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight, you know, that was sort of pretty much recorded before he got there, yeah. So that was the birth of Love and Rockets, really, that last Barhouse album. I think really looking back, it's why the band broke up, because we all wanted to go in different directions at that point. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened, you know. It broke the band up. It's just the difficulty of having too many talented people in a band, is that they're all going to grow in their own creative ways. And uh... <laughs> Again, it's a thing where you get bored with one particular mm -hmm. format. Like I was saying before with the Love and Rockets thing, we got bored with guitars and we created Hot Trip to Heaven. Whether it's going to be a success or not, we had to do it because we couldn't face the idea. You know, the idea of doing another alternative rock album was boring to us. So we, we had to change, do something new. So again, that was the case with, with Bauhaus. It was the fourth album. It was time to move on. We all felt it. 
and the rest is history. So let's conclude by introducing Flame On. It's on this new record, but I had heard it previously on the Hog Fever soundtrack when I interviewed Kevin Godley. And I know you had commented that it was a very much an Iggy Pop tribute in a way that it definitely the way you're making your voice sound on that that's not just indie rock this is like full-on 1979 punk it's actually 1969 okay okay to me it sounds like an outtake from raw power i'm a huge huge fan of that album and again with that particular song i was you know i was in a very pissed off mood and that came out i don't know what was going on that week with me but i do remember that i found this amazing sound on the guitar i had this old silver tone guitar which is an extremely crude guitar with these what they used to call them lipstick pickups and you could buy the uh, silver tone guitar they used to sell it in the supermarkets back in the 60s and it had the cheapest pickups you can imagine and they would use these lipstick containers to put the electronics in the pickup and also the body of the guitar was one grade up from cardboard it was just like you know not even a quarter of an inch thick hardboard that they used to make kitchen tops kitchen tops back in the 60s so i combined that with this old high watt amplifier which is about a foot and a half square and it sounded really crude and great i mean i could hardly keep the guitar in tune because it's such a crude guitar but the sound that came out inspired that song i tell you what there's another song actually out there that has got a similar sound as far as the guitar goes new rose by the dams if you check out the guitar sound on that the speaker is destroyed and that's how they got that sound it's using equipment that's on the blink that's you know just about to explode but again it's a completely opposite to the whole billy jean thing for example but that sound got me going, you know, and I, I wrote a song around that guitar sound. That that was definitely an inspiration to get that lyric and that vocal approach. And then when it was all finished, I noticed that it sounded like something off of raw power. I'd love to know what Iggy Pop thinks about that, but he probably will never hear it, but uh, you never know. Well, you've caused me to relook. I'd gotten my Iggy chronology a little screwed up. I just think of them as one of the consummate punk bands, which means, what, 1976? It doesn't mean, but Raw Power's 1973, and they were, you know, he was going uh, already in 1970. I thought it was was earlier than that. The thing is, that's why they call Iggy the godfather of punk, because he started that sound. The thing I love about Iggy when he said, um, yes, I destroyed the 60s, I think that's a great line. Because all that drippy, hippie <laughs> love stuff in the 60s, he destroyed it single-handedly. I think, well, not saying, uh, also MC5, kick out the jams, brilliant. Not a big fan of the hippies. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. I've enjoyed immersing myself again in your material. Hadn't listened to some of that Love and Rockets stuff in a long time. Didn't even know Tones on Tail existed. That was, I had all the Bauhaus stuff. I had the, but I had missed that little phase. Yeah, well, if you, there's one album called Everything, which are, yeah. again was a comp of everything we ever recorded. So if you've got that, you've got everything that Tones recorded. That's the one to get. I didn't know that you had things like Slender Fungus in your catalog. (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine what that was fueled on. We smoked a lot of um, hash. Yeah, a combination of Big Mac and fries and um, hashish. That's Tones. That's where that comes from. And a really healthy sense of humor as well. I recall seeing another interview of you uh, with all of Love and Rockets there, somebody asking you about, why did the the sound change after the big single? The, oh, well, we just, we're taking different drugs now. Yeah, I remember uh, an interview with Pill when Jar Wobble was in Pill. 
the original lineup, yeah. basically, which was great. And, uh, you know, they said, well, why did it break up? What happened? He said, well, we were all taking different drugs. And we were clashing because we were taking, you know, so... The uh, wrong drugs. Yeah, <laughs> so that, you know, that, I think it was actually Sting that said, somebody was talking about all the drugs and do you need the drugs to create the great music? And then I think it was Sting that said, well, you know all those great albums like Dark Side of the Moon and This, That, and the Other and Tomorrow Never Knows, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think any of that would have would be in existence without chemicals? Absolutely not. You just have to have the guy who pushes the buttons to not to have his senses. Well, I heard a really interesting story about uh, Pink Floyd. In fact, I met the engineer that ah. recorded part of the recording of Dark Side of the Moon. He said, everybody was smoking so much that the little tiny cracks on the mixing desk, they could actually see down those cracks. There were all these little men walking up and down the cracks on the mixing desk. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, they could see the different channels. There's a thin little line down there, and they were so high that they could see a whole other world down in those cracks of the mixing desk. How the drummer got it together to keep time, I have no clue. But they were stoned, yes, absolutely. The other thing is, apparently they took, it was either two weeks in the studio or three weeks in the studio, and then two weeks off or three weeks off, one or the other. Regular clockwork and like boom, boom, boom. And, if you, and the guy showed me on the faders. He said, look, if you just push all the faders up, there's Dark Side of the Moon right there. Not a lot of other tricks. It's just they recorded, what you hear on that album is, was recorded without a ton of overdubs at all. So that's fascinating that they got it together to that degree being that stern and coming up with something that sounds so precise. But there you go. Yeah, I think I saw an interview with Todd Rundgren that would specifically, who I never, you always think of as the guy who fiddles a lot of knobs, as a very heavy-handed producer, but that he has, has people work enough on the initial tracks so that you can actually maybe this is apocryphal, but like actually set the mixing board so that all the knobs are at the same level, like straight across. And you just actually record the signal at the level you want, not just try to get the best signal noise ratio on each one and turn it down, but you actually try to do it. So you don't have to do anything to mix, which seems baffling to that me. Is but. Pretty, <laughs> that is pretty much what I'm saying with dark side of the moon. It's just the engineer just put all the sliders up pretty much the same <laughs> level. And boom, there was the album. So obviously that was a way of recording in the 70s. And plus they had the Neve desks back then, which were superb. They still are. If you get a 70s or an early 80s Neve desk, it really makes your life easier because the way that desk records stuff is wonderful. The opposite to the horrible digital stuff. It's very, very rich. So the difference between vinyl and a CD is a hell of a difference. So what has been your technical solution for dealing with the horribleness of modern digital? Is it, we will put lots of analog synths in here, or I will use pedals that I can actually twist the knobs with my fingers, or what, what are the... Okay, okay. Hey, folks out there, this is the <laughs> trick to make it sound warmer. When you finish the whole thing, get the guy who's mastering it to transfer it all to either quarter or half-inch tape, board ah. it all onto analog tape, and then master it. Then you get the best of both worlds. And on that note, I bid you farewell. All right. Have a great day. Thanks so much. See you then. Bye.
All right, another wonderful interview. Thank you so much to Daniel and to his friend Christopher the Minister, who helped set up the interview. As you heard, it was another one over the phone, which I never like. But, you know, Daniel's a rock star. He can do that. Again, check out danielashmusic.com for information on the release of that new album. Some of the songs we listened to today can be heard streamed free from that site. I should mention this was kind of a funny one in that I prepared thinking that Stripped was the new album. And I had picked out songs with Christopher from that. And then when I actually got Daniel on the phone, he said, well, I've got this new thing coming out. I'd really rather talk mostly about that. And they sent me a CD super fast and had the interview the following week. So I got to talk to Daniel twice. Definitely a thrill. A big fan of his from way back of the Bauhaus and Love and Rockets material. Now, we didn't actually play any Bauhaus. If you look at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, at the blog post corresponding to this episode, I will link to some videos to get a clearer picture of Daniel's career arc and all the very cool projects he's been involved in. Now, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast on the iTunes store, I welcome you to do that. If you click the link to subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, there's an option where you can get an email whenever a new episode comes out. Better yet, follow the link to the Facebook page and like that. Add that to your feed. And please, please... Help us to publicize this thing. You could share the Facebook link to this episode on your personal Facebook page. It also really helps at the iTunes store if you can leave a rating and or review. Be sure to tune in next time. Robbie Folks, amazing singer-songwriter in the country vein. Very, very smart guy. Super slick music, but authentic. And then Nick Kershaw, then Jonathan Sagal. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.